Well, my sister says, well, you've got a tan. And my gran says, hen, you've got a wee bit of colour on you. And it's true, despite this very rainy British August, I've managed to acquire some colour to my arms and face. And it's just through having a garden. We've moved into a new house recently and we have a garden, something I've never had before. And so I'm new to the concept of spending time in the garden, hanging washing in the garden, throwing a ball for Zarbomba in the garden. And so I do this now, most days, even just for five or ten minutes at a time. And that alone, those pitiful little peeps at the sun, have coloured my arms and face. So imagine, (laughs) imagine what a stronger sunlight would do. Never mind a watery Scottish one. Imagine what a striking bright light would do. Imagine what a, well, you know where I'm going here. Imagine what a stunning, blinding flash of a 50 megaton thermonuclear bomb would do to my ever so slightly sun-kissed forearms and cheekbones. Imagine what it would do to the ground beneath your feet. Impossible to imagine it, of course. We're only human. And it's impossible to imagine what that kind of force is and what it can do. So we're lucky then that last week Rosatom, the Russian Atomic Energy Corporation, released a long classified film about the detonation of Tsar Bomba, the biggest nuclear bomb ever. And so we can now see what that burning, searing, howling white light does to the earth. And we can see how the monstrous bomb was loaded onto the plane, even though it was too big for the plane. We can see it being transported to the test site. We can see how it was dropped in a clever way that gave the air crew time to get the hell out of there before they too were destroyed by the dreadful heat and blast. So we'll take a look at the film in this podcast episode and I'll try to tell the story of Tsar Bomba. с программой испытаний новых образцов водородных зарядов 30 октября 1961 года был произведен взрыв чистой водородной бомбы с тротиловым эквивалентом 50 миллионов тонн. No, I don't speak Russian, but thanks to YouTube subtitles, I can tell you that the intro to the film which you just heard proudly announces that the Soviet Union in 1961 have detonated a clean hydrogen bomb of 50 megatons. Now, what is a clean hydrogen bomb? They mention that several times in the film, that this bomb is clean. How could anything so awesome and destructive and dreadful be clean? 
Well, we could go for a long answer, which is all about the physics, but I'm not going to pretend that I understand any of that. Just trust me that Zarabomba was constructed in such a way that his fallout was uh, minimal. It could have been cranked up a lot higher, of course, but they kept it at its minimum level. Of course, you'd expect such a massive hydrogen bomb to toss fallout out across the globe, but no. They kept it relatively clean. Consider America's infamous H-bomb test, Castle Bravo, in 1954, which notoriously ran beyond expectations, producing a yield three times what had been calculated by the scientists. And, of course, this then created far more fallout than had been expected, contaminating areas well beyond the exclusion zone and sending white flakes of crispy, itchy, slightly stingy ash down on the Japanese fishermen of the Lucky Dragon. One of them died. So that infamous test... Castle Bravo had an eventual yield of 15 megatons. Zarbomba, as we've said, had 50. But his fallout was drastically curtailed by clever physics. But the fallout was also limited by the fact that the explosion was an airburst. We've discussed in previous episodes how a ground burst is far worse for fallout, as it explodes, of course, on the ground and gouges a gigantic crater in the earth, and the contents of that crater, freshly pulverised, are carried up into the mushroom cloud, and they later drift back down to earth as fallout. The Soviets didn't do that. They took care to make sure that Zarbomba was an airburst. So she wasn't gouging out any craters in the earth. She wasn't scooping up tonnes and tonnes of the stuff to turn it into radioactive ash. So why did the Soviets limit the fallout? Well, the most obvious reason is because they were testing it on their own land. America's runaway bomb was done safely, as far as Americans were concerned, out in the Pacific. But Zarbomba was tested on Soviet soil, up in the Arctic Ocean on the Novaya Zemlya Island. So common sense says you don't want to hideously irradiate your own land. But they also restrained the fallout because this bomb, it wasn't designed to inflict damage and death on an enemy. Indeed, the Tsar Bomba couldn't be used in war, even if the Soviets had wanted to, because the damn thing couldn't fit inside an aeroplane bomb bay. It was too big. And it was certainly too heavy to be stuck on top of a missile and fired through the air. So... It wasn't designed to hurt and kill, so what was it there for? Why did they do it? Well, I suppose it was just there for show. It was there as propaganda, as a way of telling the Americans and the world, look what we can do. Although I would suppose that you can argue that every single hydrogen bomb, everyone, not just the big monsters like Zarbomba, everyone is there simply for show, simply to intimidate or to send a message to your enemy. I'll quote here from the excellent book Command and Control by Eric Schlosser, which touches on the issue. Truman's decision to develop a hydrogen bomb had great symbolic importance. It sent a message to the Soviet leadership and to the American people. 
In a cold war, without bloodshed or battlefields, the perception of strength mattered as much as the reality. A classified Pentagon report later stressed the central role that, quote, psychological considerations played in nuclear deterrence. Weapon systems in themselves tell only part of the necessary story, the report argued. The success of America's defence plans relied on an effective information programme aimed at the public. Quote here from the report, What deters is not the capabilities and intentions we have, but the capabilities and intentions the enemy thinks we have. The central objective of a deterrent weapon system is thus psychological. The mission is persuasion. So it's all about having the hydrogen bomb and making sure your enemies know you have it. It's not about using it, because as Command and Control uh, discusses and as many other excellent books on the hydrogen bomb discuss, it was initially dismissed or spoken of as a weapon of genocide. You can't deploy a hydrogen bomb in the battlefield without speaking of genocide. And why would any sane and rational person do that? So perception of strength is what matters in the Cold War. So it made sense, I suppose, to build weapons you could never use. Even weapons that were too big and too heavy to be actually delivered to an enemy. The Tsar Bomba, as we've said, couldn't even fit into the bomb bay of the famous Soviet bomber, the Tu-95, nicknamed, of course, the Bear. The Bear was, and is, still still in service, a huge plane with four engines and four contra-rotating propellers. Those massive propellers made the plane insanely loud as the tips of the propellers zoom round faster than the speed of sound. Here's a clip from a YouTube video of a bear taxiing and taking off. The roar is of course the propellers, but nothing can recreate the real sound, I suppose you just have to be there. The BBC had this to say of the Bears' noisy propellers. Chupilov's engines power two sets of 18-foot-long blades that spin in opposite directions. This makes them more efficient, but also creates enormous noise. The Tu-95 is considered to be the noisiest aircraft in current service. It's even claimed that US submarines could hear the aircraft flying high overhead through their sonar domes while still underwater. Western fighter pilots who shepherded bears over international airspace have reported being able to hear its turboprops above the sound of their own jet engines. That is a noisy bear. To get the roaring bear ready for its mission, they painted most of the body in anti-flash white, even the backs of those huge noisy propellers. Not the fronts though, 
I assume that's because they would be facing away from the flash and so didn't need to be done. But if the thing, the bomb, the the product, as they call it in the film, if it was too big to be loaded into the freshly painted bear's bomb bay, how did the plane carry it, fly it to target, drop it and then get safely home? Well, the answer is simple. <laughs> it's almost childlike in how simple it is. I imagine the guy who suggested it to have tentatively raised his hand in the bomb science class and said, couldn't we just kind of stick it to the plane? And that's what they did. (laughs) It wouldn't fit inside fully, so they just attached it to the plane's belly and they took off with the thing stuck underneath. In flight, and the newly released uh, Russian film has excellent footage of this, Tsar Bomba looks like a a baby koala bear clinging to its mum, whilst mum climbs higher and higher into the tree. So that's how they took off with Tsar Bomba. But how could they drop it? Surely when the bear releases it, it'll plummet straight to earth. It weighs a massive 26 tonnes after all, so that thing isn't going to drift slowly like a feather. It'll crash right down and will explode before the plane and the so-called laboratory plane flying behind it have a time to get to a safe distance. And if it crashes straight to earth, that would be a ground burst, won't it? They don't want a ground burst. They want it to explode in the air. So how do you make the thing product fall more slowly? Again, the answer seems simple, and maybe that's the beauty of these solutions. Simply attach a great big whopping parachute to it and force it to fall slowly. I tweeted about this um, earlier in the week, I believe, how the Americans had earlier chewed over this idea. How can we release these new hydrogen bombs without killing our own guys. And one member of the team remembered seeing Second World War footage of German tanks being dropped from a plane with gigantic parachutes. And so that's where the idea came from. So Zarbomba clung to the bear and then was dropped from it with a thousand straps and strings unfurling a massive parachute which drifted it down to just the right altitude, at which point the button was pressed and the thing went bang. And by this point, the plane had escaped to a relatively safe 45 kilometres. Far enough to survive, the crew all got home safely and the pilot was made a hero of the Soviet Union. That's the medal kept for the, the big guys and girls. Plenty of women received that honour as well. So the plane at 45 kilometres was far enough to survive, but was near enough to still be tossed around by the blast wave. Now, 45 kilometres, that's about 27 miles. So that's no distance at all when you're up against Tsar Bomba, the biggest bomb ever detonated. Then and now, nothing has ever surpassed Tsar Bomba. And to be only 27 miles from it, that's that's nothing. It's 
According to Google Maps, it's uh, roughly the distance between London and Windsor, between Glasgow and Stirling, between Sheffield and Doncaster. And if you wonder what the thing looked like, well, a Soviet cameraman who saw the explosion, he said, and I got this from Wikipedia, the clouds beneath the aircraft and in the distance were lit up by the powerful flash. The sea of light spread under the hatch and even clouds began to glow and became transparent. At that moment, our aircraft emerged from between two cloud layers and down below in the gap, a huge bright orange ball was emerging. The ball was powerful and arrogant like Jupiter. Slowly and silently, it crept upwards. Having broken through the thick layer of clouds, it kept growing. It seemed to suck the whole earth into it. The spectacle was fantastic, unreal, supernatural. And if we turn again to the footage, newly released by the Russians, we see the the flash of Tsar Bomba. And it's important to remember, of course, a flash in, in ordinary life, a flash is gone in a second. That's the whole nature of a flash. It's quick. Quick as a flash. That's where the saying comes from. But this flash was slow. It it creeps over the landscape and it lingers. It lingers for about... Well, you can watch the film, of course, on YouTube. It lingers for about maybe five or six seconds. And then it slowly starts to fade. So even the flash seemed horrible and unnatural. It was like some kind of poison which just crept over the landscape and gripped the landscape and only reluctantly began to recede. And what did the landscape look like once that terrible flash had faded and once the blast wave had raced out and away? Beforehand, the film shows us the island and being in the Arctic Ocean, it's uh, covered in snow. It's smooth and pleasant and white. Afterwards... Well, I'd say it looks like the surface of the moon. Picture the surface of the moon, but in a cold Soviet daylight. Rippled and ruffled and gouged and without a sprig of life. So you can find the video on YouTube. Just search for Zarbomba and Rosatom. Remember that I'm on YouTube, search for The Atomic Hobo. Admittedly, I haven't uploaded in a while, but that's because everything's been disrupted by our house move and by the fact that I need to get my book finished. But I will be uploading more shortly. So get me on YouTube, uh, get me on Twitter at Julie A. McDowell, uh, get me on Facebook at Nuclear Britain. That's quite a few names to remember. A sensible person would have had all their social media under one easy-to-remember name, but obviously not me. And let me thank my patrons before I go. My newest patron this week is Michael Ryan. So thank you, Michael, for your support. I'll be getting your rewards together next week and posting them out to you. Let me also thank everybody. And yes, that's a patron with the name everybody who increased his monthly donation this week. So thank you, everybody. I think he chose that name just to annoy me because I got an email alert from Patreon during the week saying, everybody has increased their pledge. But it wasn't everybody. 
it was just everybody. If you want to donate some cash to the podcast each month, uh, please go to patreon.com forward slash Atomic Hobo. You can donate as much as you like and you can cancel whenever you like. And let me give a shout out to the following lovely patrons this week. Sean Judge, Ben Capper, Mary Freer, Phil Catling, Steve Sace and Gordy McNair. Thank you everyone for listening and I'll be back next week with another episode.